Uh, what are we doing? Hi. Look for somebody so, uh, with a cell phone. What's your favorite scary movie? You'll never find me. Yeah, what do you care? Let them have their fun. So, uh, what's up? What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls. Absolutely frightening. What's yours? Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I am recording for Contrarians Corner on Showgirls. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I am joined, as always, by my co-host and co-pilot. Not necessarily this path, but this flyover of the contrary on uh, <laughs> previously unseaged ground. As we finally come face to face with Showgirls, which is definitely uh, one of the movies that's had been talked about from the beginning as it is regarded as one of the worst movies ever made and all these other hyperbolic statements you can make about it. Uh, Julio, we arrived here as part of our pledge uh, during the live stream for The Cure. We out- outkicked our coverage in terms of donations during our portion of that. So well, this will be the third part of a four-part series of our erotic uh, thrillers. <laughs> yes. Jade is a thriller. What was the previous? Uh, Indecent following Proposal. Following Jade was Indecent Proposal, excuse me. That's definitely a thriller. <laughs> yeah, this one I'm not sure I would describe as a thriller more as it is just a, a life lesson, uh, an experiment in filmmaking. <laughs> a cautionary then- tale. A cautionary tale, there you go. A, a parable, as it were. And we'll be rounding things out uh, next month with Crash, the... Why am I blanking on his name right now? James Spader. Yeah, I don't know if I want to call that movie a thriller. It's a thing that happens. <laughs> there are thrills. I'm sure it was thrilling to be part of it. And spills. <laughs> Julio, as I said, we have arrived at Showgirls. Going back to 1995, what more can we say? That's that's kind of part of it. I don't remember. Had I know you owned this movie, but had you seen it before? Because I I hadn't. I thought I had. I thought I watched it in college, and then I realized I just watched select parts of it because there were definitely <laughs> scenes and aspects to this movie that I did not have any previous recollection or knowledge of. But yeah, this was definitely on the Alex Mattis Blu-ray shelf of movies that I bought in bulk, be it at a used bookstore or. Uh, Best Buy when they would have their bins, like $3 Blu-rays. There was a point in time in my life where I felt like this was something I should probably have because of its uh, notorious, (laughs) infamous legacy. Hilariously, it is 
just like a really generic box art. If you follow our Twitter account, you'll see I posted a picture of the Blu-ray and Julio retweeted it on there. And it's just a really generic version. There's really not too much to it. But the disc is actually the 15th anniversary Blu-ray that they had released, oh. uh, which I guess that would have been 2010. To get and the, the bells and whistles commentary. The, oh, yeah. There's uh, there's some commentary from like a film critic <laughs> who the title of the commentary track is the greatest movie ever made. And it's like him. I listened to about five minutes of it was all I could take of him explaining how. The important thing when it comes to Showgirls is you have to understand the context it was created when <laughs> both with uh, Paul Vernhoven and Joe Esterhaus, they they came together with a vision. I was just like, that's it. I'm done. Was the, uh, but was the, the guy's name Noah Bombach? <laughs> that that would have been perfect. It was actually just Kyle uh, McLaughlin's commentary <laughs> of just going, oh, God, why am I in this movie? But the disc, uh, that the point of this is I opened it up and the disc is a boob. And like the 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 circle in the middle where you latch on the disc is like the nipple, so it's not really there, but there's a pasty around it. No expense and no creative idea was spared in the creation, not only of the film, but the uh, the vaunted film transfer that uh, occurred when they moved this bad boy to Blu-ray. So we're gonna do our best, listening audience at home or wherever you may be right now. Yeah, that's that's the thing because see. You hadn't seen it, you owned it, but you hadn't really seen it, but you felt like you'd seen it. And I I don't even own it, but I felt like I was somewhat familiar with what Showgirls was about, right? And just from Mm -hmm. seeing the, the, I guess, the clips, the trailers, the memes, just the overall pop culture discourse about the movie. So... I think that's part of it. It's daunting in the way that back when we did our Jilly episode, that was daunting, right? It's just like, can we really say something positive or negative about this movie that hasn't been said before? That's that's the challenge today, Alex. We're certainly going to try. I, yeah, yeah. I would like to think that between the two of us, we can come up with, uh, with something uh, that's worth our listeners' while. A fresh take. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, it's much appreciated. If you're a returning listener, appreciate you all the same. Give us just a moment here while we explain what we do to any and all new listeners. Uh, here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Is That's our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. Typically shoot about 85% and above. And uh, what we will do is we'll discuss that film and make a case for maybe why the critics got it wrong. And Maybe why it's uh, not a movie that should be held in the highest of esteems. And on the other side of the coin, like we will do on this episode, we find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes, usually about 30% and below, those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, and we'll make a case for the positive merit in the film. We'll argue why maybe people didn't understand it or what um, what you're missing out on by not checking out this movie just due to its rating on the very all-powerful Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, that is the first portion of the podcast entitled Contrarian's Corner. Julio, why don't you tell them about the second portion of the podcast? Second half of the podcast, titled Real Talk, is when we we let our real feelings fly. Uh, once upon a time, listeners, you might remember if you've been with us for a while, Alex and I used to watch these movies together because there was yes. not a global pandemic. <laughs> but it's been, I guess, almost a year now. And so yep. now we're not there. We're not experiencing the films side by side, which makes real talk even more of a, of a mystery. Cause now mm. it's not just that you 
listeners get to find out how we really feel about the movie. Uh, generally, Alex and I also get to find out how the other one feels for the first time. So that brings us to Showgirls, which was released in the U.S. on September 22nd of 1995, directed by Paul Vernhoven, who is fresh in our minds and listeners of The Contrarians coming off of our RoboCop episode. And equally as fresh is Joe Esterhaus, who wrote Jade, if I remember correctly. We couldn't have planned it better. Uh, could not have. I mean, for both of them, I think we're bringing to light their... Um, most well-known, for better or worse, piece of cinema. Julio, this thing came and took the world by storm in no particularly positive way. Uh, when the dust settled, specific to the Rotten Tomatoes, it stands currently at a modest, for a movie that's regarded as one of the worst of all time, 23%. So there seems to be a little um, a potpourri, a bevy of um, ideas and thoughts as to what this movie uh, is worthy of praise-wise. So with that in mind, though, the critics here that brought it up to 23%, what were they initially saying about this? Uh, okay, so so we're going to do rotten quotes in Gutierrez Corner, fresh quotes for real talk. So we're going to start with Jay Boyar from the Orlando Sentinel, who says, One thing I'll say for showgirls, it's educational, but sadly, it isn't much else. I, I mean, it okay. is, a, like we said, it's a cautionary tale, which usually, uh, you know, those those cautionary tales, those parables, they educate you. So, uh, Joe Baltaki from the Sacramento Bee says, Showgirls approximates the feeling of someone's lazy putting the make on you. Its brand of sexual harassment makes you feel dirty and not at all flattered. I'm always flattered mm. <laughs> when somebody, when somebody uh, hits on me. Uh, as aggressively as Gina Gershon, just pulling up and smoking her clove cigarettes, asking you to have dry sex with her boyfriend. I guess, yeah, you would take that as a compliment. It's a story, if nothing else. <laughs> Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times. A waste of a perfectly good NC-17 rating. So, so Roger wanted it to be even more hardcore. What? Yeah, it, that doesn't make any sense. Ebert's like, show me penetration or get the fuck out. What I, I is he trying to argue that it should have been an R rating? Because I <laughs> I would like a moment for rebuttal on that one. <laughs> it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna beat NC seventeen, then you need to go even further. It's like the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan when Tom Hanks goes, earn this. <laughs> Fucking. Uh... Abdul Latif Kashishi saw that review and said, give me time, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> the world's not ready yet, but they will be. Uh, Rita Kempley from the Washington Post says, an overcoat movie for men who don't want to be seen going into a porno theater. I, I just love that image. <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic review. <laughs> uh, and finally, I had to include this. Matt Branson from Film Frenzy says, The movie's pretty bad, but I prefer it over the other 1995 release written by showgirl scripter Joe Essertas, The Truly Dismal Jade. Jade will be referenced again, maybe not in this half of the podcast, but when we discuss Mr. Esterhaus. Um, so How could it we'll, not uh, come back? I was going to say, we'll put that in our back pocket. Robocop will come back too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Robocop will return in Showgirls 2. <laughs> All right, so that sets the table for Showgirls. Julio, I watched my Blu-ray copy of this. 
similar to Howard the Duck. Uh, not quite as good, but a hilariously high quality <laughs> transfer. To me, it's even more entertaining when just a shite movie has an impeccable transfer. It it makes it all the more entertaining, the viewing of it. And again, Howard the Duck, for whatever reason, is one of the best just standard Blu-ray transfers I've seen. So we're not quite up to that level. I'm going to use that as the the measuring stick uh, moving <laughs> forward. But a very good transfer on the 15th anniversary Blu-ray that I own. Uh, I saw your screenshot that you posted. Was this on IMDb or Amazon? Where did you watch this? Uh, Amazon. I, I Well, uh, Cinemax through Amazon. I'm normally not subscribed to Cinemax. But I was able to get the, the seven-day free trial, which will be canceled as soon as we're done with this recording. <laughs> I mean, you got to hold on to it for another day to see if there's any after our discussion if there's any scenes you want to go back and rewatch. Right? Yeah. No. I I kind of took a glance at what else was on their landing page to see if there was anything that I just had to watch right now wasn't available anywhere else and nothing caught my eye. So now nah. I think I'm I'm gonna do it before I forget and then I'm stuck with a month of Cinemax. You know, like you have Howard the Duck as as the the top level of transfer, and I have now uh, end of days as the bottom level of transfer for me. So mm. if I'm if I'm streaming something, I can just say this looks better than end of days, and that's and that's good. And, th- and this was better than end of days. I like it. So before we just dive in, Julio, no pun intended. Memories? You have any memories of Showgirls? Uh, as far as when it came out, um, honestly, I wasn't even 10 when this movie was released. Uh, but I do remember, I mean, the the box art and poster for this movie is fucking iconic for any boy that grew up in the 90s, I would say. Definitely one of the um, video store, you know, PM video or video connection, family video, the places I would go. This is definitely one up there with like the Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth. I've mentioned, uh, but not in the horror genre. <laughs> it, extremely memorable box art, things that I held up and just kind of looked at and stared at for a while. This was uh, more like on the on the Jade aisle. Yes, this would have been in the the blue section. <laughs> I know there's other movies with women on the cover that uh, striptease. There you go. That was similar to Showgirls. My prepubescent self would just hold with two hands and stare at and wonder <laughs> if this is what I had to look forward to when I grew up. So <laughs> life happens and I feel like Showgirls was shown once like a heavily edited version on VH1 maybe because I remember it was shown on some channel like when I was a teenager and it was a big deal. I think that would make sense for VH1. Movies that rock was their thing they used to do. I love the 90s. So I have some memories of it. Then you get to college and people talk about it being, you know, one of the worst movies ever. And it's uh, definitely is a very memeable movie. Those are my memories of Showgirls. None of them could prepare me for my uh, virgin viewing of it. But Julio, do you have any specific memories? Did this make it to Peru? Uh, I don't know if it. I'm assuming it did. Because, I mean, jumping forward to next month, Crash did. And I would think if Crash did, Showgirls definitely did. You know, those NC-17 movies with a lot of buzz. Uh, My main memory, and because you haven't brought it up, then I'm guessing that this was not your experience. But to me, this was all about the fact that Jesse from Saved by the Bell was in it. That was the Mm -hmm. big, uh, not necessarily a selling point, 
but it was just the, the, the thing that stood out. Not so much the fact that it was uh, supposed to be a very explicit movie about strippers in Vegas, but just the fact that mm-hmm. this actress from uh, basically a kid's show was just changing her image, shedding... I think it was my very first experience of uh, seeing a Hollywood player trying to change the narrative of their career. Mm-hmm. And and I remember it not sticking. I mean, because I didn't see her in any movies after that. So You mean this wasn't like Iron Man for its time? <laughs> I imagine when I was young, I, I could have pretended, imagined that, that Elizabeth Berkeley had gone on to have a very successful career in adult movies in the U.S. <laughs> but by the time I made it here, it became clear that that wasn't the case. Because actually, she is in a Woody Allen movie with that very it, she has a very small part which i remember when i watched that it was yeah. kind of confirmation that okay it's not like her career in movies took off after showgirls she's also in any given sunday it's not like she became a scorsese or tarantino regular or anything like that it's not even we'll ever hoven regular <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about this more in the the second portion uh julio would you be at all surprised to hear that the likes of Drew Barrymore, uh, Angelina Jolie, Denise Richards, and Charlize Theron turned down the role of Nomi. <laughs> Lack of vision. I wonder if they regret it now. And they're like, you know, I could have done something with that movie. I don't know if they turned it down, but Madonna, Sharon Stone, and Sean Young were all considered for the role of Crystal Connors. That's a role made for Madonna. Just a, a, a role that no matter how good or bad you are at acting, it'll make you look like a bad actor. That's that's a role that's perfect for Madonna. Man, Sharon Stone should have done it, and she would have had the Joe Esterhaus trifecta. Basic, the Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> you could just have the box set. Basic instincts, liver, showgirls. I think there's a lot of different routes this movie could take. You know, these alternate realities. If we go back in time and someone steps on a frog, and then we flash forward to 1995, and we've got fucking... Angelina Jolie, Madonna, and Dylan McDermott at the helm of this thing. I don't think that there's a single reality, though, where this movie is a box office success. Because mm. the world was not ready. I mean, you know, you you could change the cast, but the 90s is still the 90s. And we were just not ready. Who was the studio that released this? It was United Artists? They were ready, because they gave this movie fucking $40 million. They said, yeah, you know... The girl from Saved by the Bell. I don't even remember her name on Saved by the Bell. What was it? Jesse Spano. That that was okay. the audience for this movie. That was, I imagine, the executives were like, that's an untapped goldmine. All those kids that grew up watching Saved by the Bell. <laughs> Who are not yet 17. Yet. <laughs> will <laughs> They'll talk will to go their in parents. droves <laughs> to see this movie that they are not allowed into. Uh, well, because Jessie was the 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 kind of uptight. She was a good girl, you know. So that I think that that also made it the appeal. This is like that's right. Oh man, she's gonna play the complete opposite. Out of all the all the characters, short of having I don't know Screech out there doing the the stripping, you know, Jessie was the most unlikely character. You wouldn't be surprised if you saw Mark Paul Gosler or uh, uh, Mario Lopez in Vegas stripping. But to see Elizabeth Berkeley, that was like, oh, I haven't seen that before, and I probably never will. So I forgot she played the good girl on that. So taking it way back to Contrarian's, some of our rookie years, you know what that this is like is Valley of the Dolls with uh, Patty Duke in that movie. I saw comparisons like- in some of the Run Tomato quotes. 
Really, yep. really. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I would venture to say that Valley of the Dolls is slightly better than Showgirls, but they both have a pretty notorious legacy and one of the foundations of both of those, yeah, just put that together, are the the clean, the squeaky clean girls trying to play dirty. Uh, Patty Duke, of course, is not nude for 90% of <laughs> Valley of the Dolls, though. Different times, Alex. It's true. It worked to some extent, though, as the original box office haul almost recouped the budget, coming in at just under $40 million, and the movie would go on to generate more than $100 million from home video sales and video rentals. So word of mouth got out, and it worked. Whether or not that was lasting for Elizabeth Berkley's career, uh, who's to say, really? Uh, Elizabeth Berkley is our star in this movie. She is the titular showgirl, and she is Numi Malone, which right off the bat, immediate ballsy move from a writing perspective, using a name that's not even a real name. <laughs> you know, given the right set of circumstances, you could if have this had... If was rated R, we'd have a generation of Nomis. Yep, that's what I was going to say. A whole generation of, of just... You know, well, can't make the you, you're you don't watch Game of Thrones, so you wouldn't get the whole. But there's, you know, Ray jokes about how uh, there's a whole generation of girls being named after a character that was beloved for six seasons, and then the last two seasons her character took a turn, and now everybody regrets having named their kids that. Sounds very fitting with today's society and culture. <laughs> well, I, I would please tell me if you ever. In your travels, run into a Nomi. I'll do the same. Definitely will. And they will judge. We'll judge her family. I assume if I ever run into a situation where I meet a Nomi, I'm probably going to be just drunk in a bar somewhere and then just yell, (laughs) Are you named after Elizabeth Berkeley and Showgirls? She'll say, Get away from it. Sir, this is a Wendy's. Numi is a young drifter who hitchhikes to Las Vegas in hopes of becoming a dancer, a showgirl. No pomp or circumstance or any you know parade to start this it starts with the title card showgirls we don't even get uh credits for individuals in the movie showgirls there you are beautiful character reveal of uh nomi malone with the backdrop of these mountains which i don't know if it's ever truly established i think she says she's from kansas but i don't know if we ever really know where she started out I mean that sincerely, though. The there, If this movie is one thing, it is shot well. And the opening shot here, like the, the long pull with the character reveal with the mountains behind her, uh, hitchhiking, and then, of course, we see the sign behind her that says Las Vegas. It, it's like 340 miles. It's not an obtainable drive <laughs> in one shot. That's She immediately gets picked up by this driver. You know, she's hitchhiking, and then they just kind of go to the next scene, which... I think Paul Vernhoven and Joel Esterhaus are they're seeing if you're paying attention. They're seeing if you're, you know, taking note of the little things here for you yourself to decipher how long of a journey and how long of a trek this would have been. And that doesn't just stop here. That's throughout the entire movie. Uh, you as an audience member have to keep up to put some pieces together. Yeah, I mean, because honestly, that's that's how you explain why how she manages how she lowers her guard so quickly and it's because well it wasn't quickly it was a hell of a drive yeah and she gets to vegas eventually and she when they go in i, I don't know if it's caesar's or uh, shit i don't I, I wasn't taking note of the first casino they go into but she looks like me 
the two times I've been to Vegas, just completely enchanted and like spinning circularly with her arms folded out like a fucking Disney princess. That's how I've entered Vegas the two times I've gone. So I could completely relate to the emotions that she was feeling here. But Vegas immediately preys on her naivety and her, I think her eagerness is the word I was looking for because she like two quarters in hits big. Gets a huge pot of money, and then, of course, immediately intervenes is the gambling. So she gambles away all her earnings quickly, and then, as if she couldn't get lower immediately, some guy comes up and tries to proposition her, uh, essentially for prostitution. He like offers to pay her, and hits her with the line, sooner or later, you have to sell it. Foreshadowing. Which... <laughs> we talked about this. I can't remember the movie that we did recently, but I made allusion to... Indecent Proposal. Uh, that's all I could think of during this opening. <laughs> oh, really? I was just thinking of the tourism board of Nevada just furious watching this. <laughs> because Indecent Proposal, eh? What the, oh, sorry. You go to Las Vegas and you have to you have to have sex with Robert Redford for a million dollars. Sorry. Here it's, you know, this poor girl is being badgered uh into, you know, giving up her innocence and I can just see, you know, the tourism board watching this and just shaking their heads. No, a la Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight with the New York City tourism board. <laughs> well, yeah, but but it's like th- that's kind of obvious, uh, you know. Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaz, they knew that that was going to be a challenge, but you will never affect change in the world unless you take these sort of controversial stances. Vegas is always going to be sort of like a, the hotbed of the patriarchy. Unless you have brave movies like Showgirls that kind of tell it like it is and show uh-huh. just how much worse it is if you're a woman in Vegas. Like the guys have all the fun and the women do all the suffering. So you need movies like this one that, that show you that side of it. Uh, but I was going to ask you because you, I mean, like we said in the Indecent Proposal uh, episode, you've been to Vegas. I haven't. And yet, even not having been to Vegas, having been to Vegas, like in the sense that we did in this proposal recently, I was excited to get back to it. So I can kind of relate to that feeling, but also because you've been there in real life, how do you take this depiction of Vegas? Because the, the Vegas in Showgirls is not quite the Vegas from Indecent Proposal. And I, I understand that it can be, both versions can be true at the same time, but in your experience, which one resonated with you more? Nor the version from Hangover 3, is it, uh, the interpretation here? That's true. I, I mean, I'm a dude, so Vegas is a lot different. I can say I've never talked to women like that there, but I know that that happens. Uh, unfortunately, there's kind of a dangerous precedent in Las Vegas that isn't often discussed, I think, and that is, I mean, Nevada prostitution is legal. I know there's a weird kind of restraint on it in Vegas proper, but... Having been to Las Vegas the two times I am, I can tell you how easy it is to have a woman on your arm just by paying her. Unfortunately, what that leads to is a lot of men just thinking any woman is fair game for that approach, which is not the case at all. If you're Robert Redford, you send her a dress and uh, (laughs) you invite her to, uh, to play pool with her husband. Just while completely emitting your intentions to have sex with his wife, just schooling him at pool. There is a ritual. But no, I think this paints a picture of Vegas that is unfortunately not uh, as often seen uh, because we always want to tell the story from a fun perspective. And in this, you know, the single woman out there, it's a scary town to be in. It's a town run by men and it's a town that has a constant influx of uh, male tourists that are, you know, inebriated and very 
randy state of mind. So it is for a single woman, it's a dangerous place, and that's something I do believe that needs more exposure. It's a wonderful place if you know how to approach it and be responsible and mature, but obviously not everyone is. So we've used the phrase already, a cautionary tale like this is necessary. Um, and this leads to her hitchhiker stealing her shit because she trusts him, and that's not just a Vegas thing. That's just an overall, you know, keep your guard up. DTA, as Steve Austin used to say, don't trust anybody. When she discovers, though, that her things have been stolen and she's almost literally up a creek without a paddle, but instead it's, uh, you know, a boulevard without clothes. The Oscar clips in this, Julio, I hope you agree, are just non surceasing. <laughs> um, and this scene here is where she meets, we meet our her friend, like the, not lackey, but the, the best friend character, mm-hmm. Molly Abrams, played by Gina Rivera. I think she represents, you know, there's a yin and yang to uh, everything in life. And I think she represents the tranquility that comes along with Las Vegas and the actual sense of friendliness and home that's there because she's just way too nice to this random white girl with no real reason for being. Well, I think that the the point is that the reason is that she's a woman. What the movie might be trying to tell us is that there is there is this sense of a sisterhood. I guess in Vegas, if you're a woman and you're surviving in Vegas, if you haven't like turned around and left, if you're gonna make a living in in Vegas, you have to. You can't do it alone, but you can't rely on men. You can't trust men, so you have to trust women. That's like the only way to move forward. I mean, I think the movie is pretty clear about what it's trying to say. Clear indeed, as our introduction to Gina Gershon is her naked. I mean, this is uh, Shades of Killer Joe, which would come, Jesus, 20 years after the fact. So Molly works at the Stardust Casino, which is does like a nightly show. It's like the live action shows you see at Disney, just with way more tits and fire. <laughs> and... So, so Molly invites Nomi to get a taste of, you know, the the life here in Vegas. And the star of the show is uh, is it Crystal Connors and played by Gina Gershon and our reveal of her is just there's naked Gina Gershon. No time to get used to it. Has, has she been on, on the contrarian since face off? Has it been that long since we had yep, her on? That was that was it. Excellent. So she's back in the fold. She's the star of this. It's a very contemptuous, cutthroat atmosphere backstage as everyone's gunning for the top spot, uh, the Crystal Connors position, uh, and if not that, her understudy position. So there's a lot of snippy comments and you know just conniving nature. Um, not at all meant to depict women as conniving and really chippy with one another. Well, that's what they're forced into. That's the problem. The men in charge have created such a toxic environment that all they can do all these women, these dancers can do to survive is again, kind of be cutthroat and and just pick and choose their their alliances. Uh, again, you know, thankfully Nomi has Molly, so she already has an ally, uh, and it's it's pretty telling because eventually down the line, when you see what happens when these dancers are removed from this environment and allowed to be themselves, they're actually much nicer people. You summed it up better than I could. Getting to my main thesis here, I think through our covering of this, we are exposing Darren Aronofsky for the the copy and cheat that he is. His movie Black Swan ended up going on to be nominated for a bevy of awards. I believe Natalie Portman won Best Actress for it. And it really is showgirls just with a more brooding coat of paint put over it. 
It's, it's artsy showgirls. Because what you're describing is fucking Black Swan. Ballet girls. And here, that's all I can keep thinking of, though. And we'll get to more parallels between these uh, movies. But halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, this is like the bad Black Swan. I mean, yeah, Black Swan had that advantage of, you know, it knew how to play its cards with uh, with Puritan America. Because, yeah, nobody gets naked in Black Swan. And so instantly, people are more likely to to take it seriously. This is a movie about strippers that has no qualms about giving you full frontal nudity. Just constantly. So, which is what a movie about strippers should be. But of course, the the unfortunate side effect is that most of America can't take that kind of uh, honesty. <laughs> On her attempted ascension to becoming a dancer at the Stardust Casino, uh, Nomi begins stripping at the Cheetah's topless bar. We get a whole cornicova of her stripping, doing numerous routines. There is a, a ubiquitous character in this movie by the name of James, who uh, by played by Glenn Plummer, who notices Nomi early, and just wants to dance with her. And I, I can't really tell if he's smitten with her. I, he does have an affinity uh, for women, especially dancers, as we come to find out. Um, one night at the club, she is too upset to work and has a fit and uh, kind of gives her boss, Robert Davi, the what for. And ends up going out dancing with James. Ends up causing a fight and getting arrested. James bails her out. He was the bouncer at this bar, so it's one of three jobs he loses for her in this movie. <laughs> so this James character kind of pokes in and out throughout it, but would you say an audience really needs to pay attention to the James character? Well, he is the closest this movie has to a sympathetic male, right? He's like the one guy who is who's male, but somehow also getting screwed by the system. The movie toys with our emotions all throughout. I think it was two jobs, by the way. I know he definitely loses two. It might have been three. I mean, this movie, like I said, you got to keep up and put things together on your own. Uh, Verenhoven's not going to do you any favors in that way. Things resume the status quo as Nomi goes back to work at the Cheetah Club. But this is where things kind of take a Lynchian turn. Uh, a previous altercation between Nomi and Crystal. Tensions are hot. And we got to portray women as catty. Uh, and especially in a very heavily sexualized manner in this movie. So Crystal and her boyfriend, Zach, played by uh, Kyle McLaughlin. McLaughlin in this rocking, of course, the uh, Gary Oldman from the Fifth Element haircut. <laughs> They go in. They're doing cocaine. She's got the the coke ring with her grown out uh, pinky nail. Scoop it up, snort it. They're smoking clove cigarettes. They are the epitome of 1995 cool in this particular uh, moment. And they end up watching Nomi dance. They end up buying a private dance where Crystal. I was gonna say essentially, but it's not. There's nothing essentially about it. She pays Nomi to have over the clothes sex with her boyfriend. To the point where she just dry humps the shit out of Kyle McLaughlin until he completely climaxes in his pants. That was such an amazing performance for from McLaughlin, capturing the the awkwardness of uh, getting dry humped while your girlfriend watches, and then you could see in those close up the moment where he just surrendered to it. It was like fuck it, it's awkward, but it doesn't matter because I'm just <laughs> there's no going back. And- it got to a point where he's like. I'm going to come. This, <laughs> I, I, I have to embrace this moment. <laughs> might as well. <laughs> might as well go with it. Um, and this is not to take away from, from Elizabeth Berkeley's fearless 
performance. I mean, that's a that's kind of a a lap dance for the ages. And I'm talking about just as far as movies go and as far as real life goes. Like this is just uh, kind of breaking new ground. It, again, I'm from the Save by the Bell school, so it's even more shocking for me and I'm sure for millions of uh, Save by the Bell fans to see suddenly Jesse Spano just kind of owning her sexuality this way. It was just what the fuck. But it all kind of goes back to Gina Gershon, because I think that this is, on the surface, right? Your first instinct is to say, man, she she just wants to humiliate her. That's why she is basically paying to have her do a lap dance slash dry hump on Kyle MacLachlan. But once you've watched the entire movie, looking back, you realize that, no, this is just Gina Gershon trying to help Elizabeth Berkeley kind of mature. The job that she has at the, at the, at the cheetah, it's not glamorous. And there is no, you know, she keeps trying to tell herself that it's not as bad as it really is. But I think that Gina Gershon kind of uses this opportunity to teach her a lesson, to give her a wake-up call and be like, listen, number one, you have talent. Number two, you're too good for this place. Number three, whether you have talent or not, and whether this place is good or not, this is Vegas. Props to McLaughlin here. He he nailed the I just came in my pants thing so well. <laughs> that like kind of haze that washes over him and then that moment of realization and then just Huh. plays it off. He's like, well, there's nothing I can do about it now. Might as well just stand up and leave. Uh, James was privy to what was going on here. He kind of looked in on the room and saw it, and he gives Nomi some big spiel about how she has real skill. She's a dancer. She shouldn't be fucking for money. And she says, I'm not having sex for money. And the line I've written down here is he says, you fuck them without fucking them. And we're talking just... <laughs> I, have a, I have a different line. I think it's in this... In this same conversation argument that they have where he goes, everybody got AIDS and shit. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> he just assumes she had sex. Like, yeah, he assumes they had full on intercourse, uh, which just he didn't really have that good of a window into seeing what was going on. A guy who looks like Rory Cochran's brother is like a liaison for the Stardust Casino and goes and tells Nomi, hey, we've got you tabbed for tomorrow for the auditions to be a part of the crew, you know? And she immediately suspects that for whatever reason, this obsession that crystal has with her is uh, the root of the, the problem. I think she thinks that crystal's out to humiliate her, which very well could be the case, but it leads to her going to audition for goddess at the stardust casino. Did you get uh, chorus line flashbacks? During this whole sequence of the audition? Immediately. When they show the wide <laughs> shot of the stage with everyone like stretching and warming up. Yep. I I literally, I watched this with my sister and I literally started going aloud, God, I hope I yep. get it. <laughs> I hope I get it. That movie would have been so much better with uh, with Elizabeth Berkeley as one of the auditioners. Or Showgirls, as good as it is, could have been better if Mike Douglas was the director of the show. Well, I think we could just compromise and have Mike Douglas make his performers rub ice on their nipples <laughs> and pinch their nipples because they need to be pointy need to be impressive and yeah i mean again a scene objectifying women he makes the three women that he's chosen take their tops off to compare their breasts it's something you get elizabeth berkeley giving herself a titty twister on stage and just <laughs> not james remar just eyeing her up and down really creepily it's, it's funny because you know as as the movie goes along it starts to desensitize you Right, that there is a, mm -hmm. there's a moment where you just where it peaks. I think it's shortly after uh, Elizabeth Berkeley dry humps Kyle MacLachlan, where you're like, well, where do we go from here? 
and 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 then she has like a a dual dance number with with you know one of the other strippers at the at the cheetah and it's just like the camera is it goes everywhere you see everything and so now by the time you get to the audition for goddess you know i was actually kind of surprised that they were shocked that the, the three dancers auditioning were shocked when the guy goes like well now i need to see your breasts because i'm like but we've seen them we've seen them so much and it kind of made me realize that yeah i'm the movie is kind of throwing that in my face that you know it's not the movie it's me that i i shouldn't have become desensitized to just how, how humiliating this can be to a woman but because i am removed from the from the experience cuz i'm just watching it and not really internalizing it i I don't know, 40, 50 minutes into the movie when somebody, when a woman is asked by a man to just take her clothes off for a job audition, I just take it as like, well, why doesn't she? She's been doing it for 40 minutes already. Uh, it was it was a pretty fascinating bout of introspection <laughs> brought about by uh, Verhoeven and Esther has. You get dangerously used to nudity in this movie. It occupies so much of the time on screen that it's almost weird when people are clothed. So... I understand coming in with that perspective. I mean, thank God at some point they 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 shake things up and give you McLaughlin ass, but that's not for a while. Unfortunately, it was a body double. Hate to burst the bubble, but God damn you! Why would you do that to me? <laughs> <laughs> so she kind of has this fling with James. They go off together. Uh, he goes and buys her a burger, and they drive around Vegas. The fucking bitch litters. She throws her <laughs> trash out the window. I guess that was in 95 that showed how free and uh, wild your spirit was, was just just destroy the earth. Uh, they go back to his place, which is uh, an extremely 90s apartment for any type of movie. And they end up dancing, and he's trying to teach her these new moves that he's got and this dance that he wants to do. I'm never really sure what his end game is. Uh, he doesn't really have a club or a production that he could incorporate this to. I think it's just the love of the game. Yep. They end up dancing. He's it's very uh, provocative. He's doing all this work on spec. Nobody's <laughs> paying him to write the script, but he's going to write it anyway and see if anybody's interested. It'll get him, you know, opportunities down the door. It's called paying dues. <laughs> yes. And they end up dancing and it leads to heavy petting and making out. And he goes to, uh, you know, place. <laughs> I don't know why I'm trying to be delicate about shit now. <laughs> And he goes to basically finger her. He starts reaching down her pants and she says, I'm on my period. And he stops and she's like, check and see. It's one of those things that's so strange. In the moment, you're like, why is this in the script? <laughs> but then as the movie goes on, you think this movie wouldn't have worked if that wasn't in there. It makes perfect sense why this is in here. It's it's in a way, it's the only movie where this could have happened. Therefore, it should happen. You know what I mean? Like, if not now, when? If not here, where? It, it's just. I think that's one of the one of the tenets of filmmaking for Verhoeven and Joe Esser has as they were making this movie. I mean, that in and of itself is brilliant. You know, people try to create these universes or these self-contained worlds in their movies. This was they were just interested in creating a two-hour piece of art that could only work in and of itself. Yes. And also, you know, like, I, I appreciate it, even back in the mid-90s, this approach to period sex, right? Because, what's his name? James? Is that the, the guy? James. Yeah. Glenn Plummer. Yeah, James's response once 
we're all on the same page and it's been confirmed that she is on her period. It's not like to shame her or to act disgusted. Or He's just like, hey, I got towels. All right, cool. We're, you know, it's not like they spend 30 minutes talking about it, but it's it's a start. I, I, I like the the progressive <laughs> momentum that uh, Verhoeven and, and Ezra has were building. Next time he sees her, though, it's not so pleasant as he's now like a bellhop for one of the casinos in town i I believe he says we ain't got no ties and this is where he loses his second job for her he's just got a short fuse his boss tries to tell him to do something and he says fuck you i quit and then they kind of just walk (laughs) off together it's a new day and a new life for numi as she is on the team and a part of the goddess production and she is just you know on top of the world and she's getting introduced to everybody and taken around given the whole rigmarole of how it works. She shows up with a brand new dress, has the amazing line, or as I have in my notes in all caps, great line. Uh, They said, that's a nice dress. And she says, thanks, I got it from Versace. (laughs) Apparently, that was actually a suggestion from Elizabeth Berkley. Uh, She's like, hey, I think my character would say this. Which, the fish out of water, I mean, that's something that's been parodied in many many movies featuring reese witherspoon and i think you can directly attribute comedy of that nature to showgirls yeah i mean they knew what they had because it's not just a throwaway line it becomes a running gag basically everybody says versace to her until kyle mclaughlin kindly corrects her it's versace (laughs) shuffles his hair to the side what a fuck (laughs) what am i doing here She is a part of the Goddess production. Her first night with the team goes swimmingly. I believe it's at this point she wants to go tell James about how good everything's gone. And this is pretty much where we just cut off with James. as She shows up at his apartment or his shed, whatever it is that he lives in, and you know is there to speak excitedly and share the experience with him. And lo and behold, he's got another girl in his place, and it's actually uh, one of the girls from the Cheetah Topless Bar that um, Nomi had previously worked at. So this is kind of where she throws the line back at him that we ain't got no ties. <laughs> what it leads to is him finding her outside of the Stardust Casino, and he basically professes to her that he's a sex addict. <laughs> he says, I have a problem with pussy. <laughs> and Julio, you know, we jest a lot in here, but my mind was fucking blown during the scene because it was Christmas in Vegas and they're playing come all ye faithful while this dude's admitting to his sex addiction specifically with white women. I think is what he says. It's one of these scenes that if you explained it to someone, they would say there's no way that actually exists in a major motion picture that was printed on film. And you could say, uh, 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 exists on showgirls and it could only exist on showgirls. Crystal takes Nomi under her wing. She sees that she's ripe for manipulation, and she also has this weird sexual attraction to her. So it's time to plant some seeds of doubt and manipulation. She takes her out to each. They go to the Miracle Mile in Vegas, which is one of my favorite places to walk about. Julio, if and when you ever go to Las Vegas, definitely check out Miracle Mile. In this particular scene, my note says Gina Gershon is dressed like Ted DiBiase. Uh, If you don't know who that is, you can Google that and then watch this movie and see that she got Ted DiBiase's ring gear and did like what Marge Simpson did with the uh, Chanel dress where she just changed it to make it look different and all her own. This, though, she gives like this whole spiel about what we are as women in this town to Nomi and 
Julio, I don't mean to speak for you, but I think we got serious best supporting actress vibes as far as the the, the scene goes. Well, yeah, I, and also we got serious uh, Pacino De Niro in Heat diner vibes, where it's just like <laughs> these two titans. We've been waiting half the movie for this conversation to take place. I mean, they've they've interacted, they've they've been catty, they've been not friendly to each other. And this is it's not that they're hundred percent friendly. You can sense that there's still tension, but this is this is what we wanted. We wanted them to sit down and and kind of be open with one another and, and it just delivers. It's just so exhilarating to see you know, there's no dancing, there's no nudity. This is just them acting. It, it was just like what the movie needed at this point. To me, I got the feeling that there was some competitiveness between the two, especially here where Gina Gershon is just is so ridiculously upstaging Elizabeth Berkeley in terms of performance. Maybe dynamism between Crystal and Nomi was uh, both on and off screen. It bled into real life. Because Gina Gershon eats her up in this. <laughs> and I think this might be the only scene in the movie where that doesn't end by Elizabeth Berkeley grabbing her things and leaving in a huff. <laughs> Nomi has taken on the new life. She quit the Cheetah Club, to which um, veteran actor Robert Davi said, you'll be back. They're always back. So as a member of the goddess cast, she's basically trot around town like a celebrity, and she's asked to do a goodwill appearance, as they say, at a boat show. It's like a local, an annual event that they have, like this convention, which if there's one thing that happens in Vegas, it's conventions of any type, so I fully believe this was a real convention they just lucked out into filming basically the scene in the script just said Nomi dances at a convention and <laughs> Verenhoven just got on the horn or he opened up the paper he's like alright so what's in town this week um, awesome shot of this convention with them dancing on top of a boat yep. the wide shots specifically in this movie are fantastic and this is definitely one of them and then it gets to Elizabeth Berkeley, and I can't remember which one of the her partners is with her but Long story short, they dance and entertain some businessmen that are there, and they quickly figure out that they were brought there to, they were brought there to be pimped out. I mean, they were somebody warned her. Molly warned her. He's like, "Hey, you know, I've heard that mm. some people didn't like it when they went into this, but she went anyway." But then Elizabeth Berkeley, who that's her thing during the movie, uh, it's this constant struggle to go up the the corporate ladder, the the entertainment ladder, the showgirl ladder, if you were, uh, without sacrificing her dignity. That's throughout the entire movie. She's constantly like, I'm not a whore and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm naked, but I don't like it and so on. And so here she has that moment where she could have gone with the flow because it's basically her boss saying, hey, now you we're going to go back to my place and you're either going to have sex with me or have sex with this this tourist from the convention. And she actually she stands her ground and she tells him to go fuck himself and storms off. Mm -hmm. And it's like, good for you. And she immediately <laughs> goes and relays this to... Uh Kyle McLaughlin, who didn't mean to cut you off. I just want to make sure I get to it because it's so amazing where he tells this guy off he's, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I think Nomi was just jumping to some conclusions. And <laughs> McLaughlin hits him with, you do that again, you'll be jumping to your conclusion. <laughs> Best original screenplay, Joel Esterhaus. Dude, Esterhaus was on fire. This this might have been his greatest achievement uh, earlier in the diner scene between um, Gina Gershaw and Elizabeth Berkeley. Gina Gershaw has the awesome line, uh, we're not so different, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful poetry. Uh, so so yeah, this so this is the moment where 
where it all changes, right? Because up till now, I think we've been alongside Elizabeth Berkeley in this journey. Even when, as the audience, we might have thought, oh, she's being a little too trusting. She's a little too naive for Vegas, whatever. Mm-hmm. We're still kind of like, our level of knowledge has been the same as hers. But this is where Verhoeven kind of like turns things up a notch. Because, yeah, Kyle MacLachlan chews this guy up. Elizabeth Berkeley walks away thinking that, you know, she won, that she made a statement or whatever. And then we see McLaughlin call the guy on the phone and kind of laugh about it. I mean, like, okay, get back here. And that's when you realize, yeah. oh, he's an asshole too. He's 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 just as bad as everybody else. He's just a little more charismatic and better looking. And and now the dynamic between us and Elizabeth Berkeley changes because now we know more than she does, which changes how you experience the movie, right? I, I think that this is where we go from discovering the joys of Vegas with her and the triumphs or whatever to dreading what's going to happen next because we know that there, that Kyle MacLachlan is evil and she doesn't which is great i mean it's just like what what a i don't know what just what a bold move to pull halfway through your movie yeah we we can kind of see how it's going to unfold and kind of want to tell her to get the hell out of the way of the train that's coming at her mm-hmm. unfortunately she's not able to the spirit overtakes her and she's now made up her mind that she wants to take away Zach from Crystal and she wants to become the star of the the production there at the uh, Stardust Casino. So she ends up spending an evening with Zach. They go back to his house. My note here just says insane sex scene. <laughs> There's not much that can prepare you for something like this. I feel, uh, <laughs> first of all, as we mentioned, the disappointment of Julio uh, for the gratuitous ass shot here of the male, Kyle McLaughlin used a body double, so that's out. But much like with 80% of the movie otherwise, full-on nudity from Elizabeth Berkley. That in itself is a commentary on sex and sexuality in movies. I mean, it's not a fault of the movie. It's a fault of the industry, I guess, and society and whatever. Elizabeth Berkley, the star of the movie, is going full frontal. No, there's nothing mm-hmm. covering her. There's no blurriness, nothing. Kyle MacLachlan, I, I mean, okay, as double or not, he doesn't go full frontal. And I mean, it's not like, you know, he gets the, the carefully composed shots to, to not show us his junk. And it's like, uh, what the hell? I mean, initially I was disappointed at Verhoeven and uh, Esther has, I mean, mostly Verhoeven, you know, not being brave enough to just go all in the way that with the male character, the way that they were with the female character. Uh, but then I realized I was like, no, this is, this is their commentary about how even in a movie that's so uh, out there, showgirls, so transgressive in a way, they still have to bend to the will of society and, and the entertainment industry. We're like, yeah, we might be ready for fully naked Elizabeth Berkeley, but we're not ready to see Kyle McLaughlin's penis. We are ready to see them have sex. Julio, have you ever had sex in a pool before? Uh, no, and I've heard that it's not particularly healthy. <laughs> so my experience with it was uh, shallow water, so there was no injuries or any type of infection occurred. Uh, but it's not so much that, the whole underwater nature. That, I was just immediately getting flashbacks of Spring Breakers, that three-way towards the end. <laughs> I think under any circumstance... I would be concerned if the woman I was having sex with like voluntarily started waterboarding herself <laughs> mid-coitus. I'd, I think I would have at least a pause. At least a pause and kind of a, hmm, do I keep going? <laughs> I don't think Kyle McLaughlin had much of a choice, honestly. The way that things, 
were framed there. I was gonna say I I I think he had a choice, but he it made him even more excited. The shot like lingers on his face when she starts convulsing in the water, and he's just like. Hell yeah. It seems like one of those things in a movie, like when uh, Leo wipes his blood on um, uh, Carrie Washington in mm-hmm. Django, something completely unscripted. She just took that. Elizabeth Berkeley just started doing that. And like McLaughlin got like shoot hard, was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I watched it, I was like, man, this is, this is pretty wild. And then as I was writing it down, I realized that, well, anything less than that would have been disappointing. The way that the movie has been a, building up. Exactly. It's all these things that should not work in any movie ever, and they wouldn't, except for in Showgirls. This is a movie that created, it's, it made its own opportunities. There's only one way that this could end up on screen, and that's if we make it happen in this movie. You got Verhoeven just sitting behind the camera, and he calls cut, and he does that thing where he doesn't say anything. He just kind of looks down at his feet, and everyone in the cast is like completely quiet and really tepid. And- <laughs> And then he just like pulls his head up. It's perfect. <laughs> and Numi knows that she's in now. After Zach was in her, she knows she's in, and she's the the star of the show, the cock of the walk, the toast of the town. She she starts burning bridges left and right, treating everyone like shit, like they're beneath her. Uh, she's gunning for the top position. Zach, fuck you, you're out type thing. He essentially tells Crystal, you're fucking out. We got a new star. She's going to become your understudy, and she's going to be the heir to the throne. Moment doesn't last too long, uh, as Nomi's moment in the sun's taken away, when we just get a very quick explanation that she's not going to be an understudy, and that is because that Crystal got her lawyers involved, and there was nothing that Kyle McClanahan could do about it. Crystal retains her spot atop the mountain. Nomi is livid, bitter, jealous and it leads to uh an altercation i guess you could say as they're coming down the staircase after uh one of their musical numbers she just pushes gina gershon who takes a hellacious bump down the staircase (laughs) and is severely injured uh, to the point where we find out she has a concussion and a compound fracture of the right hip which i didn't even know that shit was possible without (laughs) your whole body being turned around type thing I mean, it's uh, it's it's quite the fall, and she was hardly it, wearing it, any clothes. It looks no brutal. Padding. So naturally, Nomi's the show. She takes over as the the feature attraction of Goddess, and now I guess she's dating Zach. They basically have become the couple that Zach and Crystal were. Uh, takes her to a party at at his house. They're in love now. Uh, she brings Molly along with her as. A celebrity, I believe he's supposed to be a musician, Andrew Carver, of some popularity, but he's coming to have a stay, a a show in Vegas, so he's kind of buddying up to Zach here. Um, It's a Vegas party that gets extremely out of control. This Carver character turns out to uh, not be such a nice fellow. Um, A pretty unflinching scene of brutality against the Molly character as Carver and his, I guess, his two bodyguards um, assault her and it's a sharp left that this movie takes here, Julio. Brutal. Uh, in a way, it's one of those where, like, well, Verhoeven sensed that the audience by now would be a little too comfortable with how far the movie could go, so he went even further. It's it's nasty. It's a nasty sequence, but it also kind of shows you that, well, we've reached the point of no return. Now, innocents are really getting hurt because, I guess, there's no character more innocent in the movie 
than Molly. I mean, I think she's the one character that hasn't like harmed anybody, that hasn't tried to exploit anybody. And of course, that's how you get your audience. You hurt her and make us uh, make us angry and make us just really we want retribution in the movie in a way, you know, for the last 20 minutes or so, it just becomes a revenge movie, which is not what we were expecting. Mm. Uh, once again, Verhoeven and Esther has pulling the rug from under us. Uh, just when we think that we've seen the worst in Vegas, there's another layer of hell awaiting us. Nomi goes to visit Molly at the hospital and immediately is wondering where the fuck are the cops? Why has anyone called the police filed a report yet? We know who did this. We need to get them arrested. And this is where Zach explains that, hey, he's going to become an act for us. Uh, we'll pay Molly plenty of hush money. Just tell her not to bring it up. Don't press any charges. It's a pretty disgusting proposition. And Nomi says, no, I'm going to go to the police anyway. And this is where the age-old tale of blackmail comes to surface, Julio. We knew at one point Nomi's past was going to come back to haunt her. And this is where uh, Kyle McClanahan pulls out and reads her the riot act. He's literally reading from the script that has, you know, all of her crimes and it's her track record, man. And it is not a pretty one. Yeah. It, in a way it's, it's crazy because the, all the stuff that he says explains any sort of weirdness that you might've felt about the, the Nomi character or about Elizabeth Berkeley's performance. Well, it all makes a lot more sense once he starts listing like all the things that she's gone through, all the things that she's, that she's been, uh, in trouble for it's like you didn't need it right i was i was buying it from the movie as it went i was like okay i guess this is just the, the way that the character is but then once you fill in the details of her past it just made more sense it, it was crazy because i didn't think that you could add another dimension to elizabeth berkeley's performance and yet they did <laughs> and it was just like basically by mclaughlin reading her her rap sheet it was crazy it's yeah prostitution assault with a deadly weapon robbery and right, like, her it, name is Polly. Th- that, for example, like the, the, the assault with a deadly weapon, right? It recontextualizes the the beginning of the movie when she pulls the knife on the guy that was giving her a ride. Like yeah. you read it yeah. one way at the beginning, but now once you know that she's actually being in trouble with the police for assault with a deadly weapon, now it's like, well, now I want to rewatch the movie and just <laughs> it'll be like through new eyes. Lucky that he escaped with his life. Nomi is out for blood out for revenge, goes and doesn't necessarily disguise herself as a call girl. They know who she is. She just goes to pay the aforementioned Andrew Carver a visit in his hotel room, uh, fronting as though she's going to strip and they're going to have sex. She begins her routine and then just beats the shit out of him, pulls a knife on him, says, you know, be quiet, and then just kicks him in the face a whole bunch, breaks his nose. Uh, I guess this is I am woman, hear me roar. She leaves and makes a joke on the way out. Oh, he needs some rest. You guys can just leave him be to his bodyguards. And then she goes to the hospital to explain to Molly, you know, I did your bidding for you. I did your fighting and I beat the shit out of him and he he's never going to bother you again or something to that extent. Cause it's really just that easy to wrap up a situation like that. I mean, it is, and it is once you, uh, once you fear no more. You know, it's like she's she stopped trying to succeed in Vegas. She's done with it. She's she's had her fill of Vegas, uh, even though she's basically reached the top. She's the new Gina Gershon, but she cares not for it. And then once you stop caring, you can do anything, <laughs> including uh, avenging your friend and then having a heart to heart with Gina Gershon herself. I was about to say, she's not quite yet the new Gina Gershon. She's not quite yet the new Crystal Connors because the torch has to be passed. 
As she goes down the hall to visit Crystal in her hospital room that's just overflowing with bouquets and flowers. And we get this tearful goodbye about, you know, kind of like they're essentially saying to one another, I'm sorry, yeah, but I would have done the same thing. Gina Gershon asks Elizabeth Berkeley to take her helmet off. <laughs> and she explains, you know, uh, I'm proud of you, and now it's your time to take this. And she gives her a fucking Indiana Jones hat. <laughs> Gina Gershon starts crying, and then they kiss. I think it's and it, Elizabeth Berkeley leaves. I think it's accurate to say that that's the kiss that we've been waiting for the entire movie. Yes, not in a sexual way, just as in like we we want these two characters to connect in a meaningful way, and that that kiss just kind of encapsulates that. So she says goodbye. She uses uh, what's come to be the catchphrase of Gina Gershon. Thanks, darling. Echoes that back to her. And then she's on the shoulder of the freeway trying to hitchhike. <laughs> fearless. Absolutely fearless. And that outfit she's got on is fearless. Title track, Taylor Swift's album. <laughs> she finally gets a, a car to pull over. It's a fucking Bronco, which I don't know if that was by design because in 95, 94, Broncos with the OJ chase would have been all the all the rage. It's the same guy that got her in the first place. And this dude is so distracted, and I guess he just does this all the time, preys on innocent people. Uh, he doesn't even recognize that it's clearly the same gal he picked up two hours ago. <laughs> and and she gets in the car, and he starts trying to make a move. She pulls the knife out and takes her glasses off. It's, one, it's like, who is that? And takes her sunglasses off. Oh, no, it's you. Full like, give circle. Give me my shit back. And, and then we see I did pop hard for it would have had to have been a practical billboard that was built with a caricature of Elizabeth Berkeley on it. I just, oh, the uninitiated driving to work in the morning and seeing that. What what the fuck is that? <laughs> is that, the fuck is this is that Jesse Spano from, from Saved by the Bell? Goddess? <laughs> we, we just got Mamma Mia, and now I got to do this bullshit? <laughs> and I guess, the, did I read too much into it, or is the implication that they're heading towards Los Angeles? Julio, you did not read too far into it. As the original idea for Showgirls 2, because this was going to be a box office sensation. Uh, people were expecting it to draw similar uh, returns to Robocop or Basic Instinct. So, as you always do when you're thinking movies like this are going to be big, you got to build in that sequel, baby. So, Showgirls 2, or Shower Girls, or Showist Girls, show is going to be show women about Nomi's conquests and triumphs and uh, even her failings in the city of angels, Los Angeles, as she went to become an actress. So that was the idea for part two that never was to be. I mean, it makes sense. You know, you conquer Vegas. The next challenge is Hollywood. I, I, I do not know how they would have closed the trilogy, though. Where do you go after, you've, after you're done with Hollywood? Austin, Texas? In 95? I guess it probably would have been 96 or 97 by that point. Uh, you can go to New York. Oh, there you go. Work on Broadway. Yeah. There, oh, yeah. Man, they should pay you for those ideas. I mean, there it is. We've constructed the Showgirls trilogy that just never was to be. As you mentioned, the world was not ready for Showgirls in 1995. Could still happen, Alex. They're all still around. Please, no. <laughs> There's... All right. Fuck this movie. I want to stop like, even laughing at it. Let's go to real talk. You have great tits. They're really beautiful. I like nice tits. <laughs> I always have. How about you? I like having nice tits. How do you like having them? What do you mean? 
You know what I mean. I like having them in a nice dress or a tight top. You like to show them off. I didn't like showing them off the cheetah. Why not? I like looking at them there. Everybody liked looking at him there. Made me feel like a hooker. You are a whore, darling. No, I'm not. We all are. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. Maybe you are a whore, Crystal, but I'm not. You and me, we're exactly alike. All right, we are back. But before we get to real talk... It's time for PP, our patron plug. Hi, everybody. We have a Patreon. <laughs> if you're a patron, this is where you find out what's coming up uh, on the Patreon. If you're not a patron, this is where maybe you hear about all the cool stuff and decide that you want to be a patron. Uh, we're going to have, as usual, deleted clips, clips that didn't make it into the episode. Uh, I can already tell there's a couple things from this Showgirls recording that are not going to make it to the official cut. <laughs> and uh, and then we also have our uh, patron bonus episode that's exclusive only for patrons. This month it's going to be... Alex, did we settle on uh, Bachelorette? Are you cool with that? Or did you have any other ideas? No, that works for me. I, I love that movie and will take any opportunity I can to talk about it. So that sounds good. And it, as I've mentioned, due to some of the subject material and uh, themes that it deals with, uh, it'd be kind of difficult to do for our gimmick. So I think just a, a Patreon-exclusive episode where we just talk about how we feel about uh, Bachelorette would be perfect. Fantastic. That, that's a movie that you, you've brought up before, and I've never seen it. So, so that's good. I, I, I like good. it. Uh, so yeah, to get that episode, that's only on the Patreon feed. And then also, I mean, as part of one of the Patreon perks, uh, our Patreon poll picked our bonus episode for this month for the official feed, and we're going to be doing uh, Baccarat. Baccarat? I don't know how you pronounce it, but we'll talk a little more about that at the end of this episode. So anyway, uh, as we've been teasing for the last couple episodes, uh, we are rebranding Extended Plugs. I'm going to call it something else because sometimes we don't really want to plug what we're talking about. We're just talking about stuff. Uh, yeah. And last episode applied to you. This episode is actually kind of going to apply to me, Alex, and we'll get into that in a minute. But from here on out, extended plugs is no more. And instead, the segment is going to be called Contrarians After Hours. And if you don't like it, please let us know. <laughs> And we'll rebrand it again. But Contrarians After Hours is where we uh, we kind of talked about stuff that has nothing to do with the main episode. Um, sometimes it'll be recommendations. Sometimes it won't be recommendations. Like when Alex just felt the need to talk out his feelings about Chinatown. Uh, so, Alex, what will you be talking about in Contrarians After Hours uh, this time around? Yeah, After Hours is kind of an amalgamation of, uh, it's a victim of circumstance. It's things that Julio and I would typically just talk about and discuss when we used to get together for our recording sessions. But since that doesn't really happen anymore, it's a lot of um, straight to business when we record and do these virtual sessions. So it's kind of just like, not venting sessions, but just discussions that kind of uh, peeling back the curtain a little bit and getting an insight to what uh, things used to be like with Julio and I before this godforsaken pandemic hit and also uh yeah it's 
most of the time we do our research come prepared so we felt it'd be a good addition to the patreon uh for myself for this installment of contrarians after hours i watched the uh michael mann 2001 biopic ali again recently actually Ooh. this week i have some confused feelings about that movie not confused i have some complicated feelings about that movie i should say so we will be having a, a discussion a dissertation on uh will smith's one and only oscar nomination i i've seen it once and uh but i'm very very interested to hear what you have to say because you are you are a boxing fan which mm-hmm. you know i'm my my knowledge of the sport is about as superficial as my knowledge of mma and <laughs> and pro wrestling so as with those other subject matters i look forward to you enlightening me <laughs> uh on my end i i was like yeah alex is right this can't be just about plugs because what happens when we go a week where we're watching stuff but none of it's stuff that we want to recommend mm-hmm. <laughs> i had a pretty bad run of movies <laughs> that you know i mean i don't regret watching them in the sense that i i welcomed experience but it's not movies that i would tell anybody that they need to watch you know not as a plug so i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that um i'm not gonna go in depth about any of them but uh i watched the uh, the documentary f for fake which is orson wells last movie uh, yeah i know it was it was fascinating i don't know that i would recommend it but i, I kind of want to tell you about it uh i also watched the netflix original malcolm and marie which has proven to be pretty divisive i guess on film twitter uh, mm. And then I watched this HBO movie. We might not even get to it. Uh, the Little Things. I don't know if you heard about it, but watch that. So expect that during Contrarians After Hours. If you want to check out our Patreon page, look at the tiers, see what we're offering. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. That's where you can look at uh, all the different levels of pledges that you can that you can take part of. $1, $3, $5, $10. Those are the available tiers for y'all uh, for... Less than it would cost to get a bottle of Coca-Cola at the store. You can have access to our exclusive content. And also, that would in turn deputize, galvanize you to tell us what movie that we need to give the contrarians treatment. So head on over to our Patreon, check it out. And for all of our current subscribed patrons, much appreciated. Yes, sir. Julio, let's get this over with. We can't delay it any longer. We have to have a serious discussion about Showgirls. Welcome to Real Talk. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Showgirls released in 1995. I believe that, if I had that correct, it was September. I already lost my page here. September 22nd, 1995. Box office of under $40 which uh, the budget was approximated between $40 and $45 So a... Definitive box office bomb, however, as I mentioned in the first portion, through uh, video rentals and video sales, the movie ended up uh, grossing about $100 million in the end. And, of course, has gone on to something of cult legend. It has garnered quite the reputation, and we have discussed movies like this, uh, but it seems like this one definitely has some of the most fanfare around it about... um, I saw a analogy to it was originally crucified and then resurrected. If you're into, you know, like religious Jesus. iconography. <laughs> it is a movie that is 23% on Rotten Tomatoes and it is a movie that is not good and has very interesting um 
I, some people might say complicated legacy and complicated production. I don't really think so. I think it was just a lot of really, really bad decisions made by people in positions of, I think, power, but also, I mean, clearly, Verhoeven and uh, Esterhaus were just given carte blanche with this. And, um, <laughs> I mean, I I have so many questions, and you know what sucks? That I just there's no answers. You know, there's <laughs> only speculation. Short of like sitting down with Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus, I'm never gonna know the truth behind Dude, Showgirls. And the even sixty then, minutes interview, you just sit down with them, long dramatic pause. Why? <laughs> but even then, I wouldn't trust them to tell me the truth. No, <laughs> you know, I, no. I would just second guess it. Every every time, um, I have I have a bunch of quotes, Alex. Let's get through them so we can just I I mean I don't have Verhoeven and I don't have Esterhaus, so you're gonna have to do. You're gonna be the recipient of all, all right. my questions. What were the critics saying? Hula? Who fucking liked this movie? All right, so like in the first part, I grabbed uh, a couple more quotes than usual because there were just so many. Starting with Tim Brayton from Antagony and Ecstasy, who says, intelligently made by a smart director in full command of his powers. Antagony and Ecstasy mm. is the name of his website. <laughs> yep. That checks out. Uh, Christopher Knoll from filmcritic.com says, Showgirls is fun, pure and simple, as long as you don't take any of it seriously. And as long as you ignore the brutal rape scene in the third act, I guess? No shit. The hell, Christopher Knoll? Chris Alexander from Alexanderum Film says, What Berhoven and Esterhaz are doing here is painting a sperm and bloodstained black velvet painting of a festering sore of a world. <laughs> sperm and bloodstained black velvet painting. I did see a lot of some of the retroactive like um, legacy reviews of it trying to make a case for how it was misunderstood and trying to show you know turn a mirror on society and the misogyny of it all okay mm. we'll get there we'll get there because i i mean yes but no <laughs> <laughs> okay two more two more uh gillem martinez oya from cinematismo says about dreams the american dream the ephemeral the permanent las vegas everything is possible everything welcome to the show I think he was writing the the back of the DVD case. Yes. <laughs> and finally, closing with this one, which is very near and dear to my heart, Trace Thurman from Horror Queers Podcast says, this is a camp masterpiece and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Now, here's what what's upsetting on a personal level. I know Trace Thurman. I've had dinner with Trace Thurman. Like, we're not like... <laughs> BFFs or anything, but you know, we have a mutual friend and we've hung out at least once that I can remember of. He is a well spoken, smart guy. So I don't think that he's fucking with people. I think that he believes this, you know, that this is a camp masterpiece. And granted, I mean, he's more of a of a horror guy. Yeah, so I know that it's not like we have the, the same sensibilities, but still, it's so easy for me to just kind of shrug off the quotes from all these critics that I don't know in person because I can just mm -hmm. pretend that they absolutely don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. But this is the equivalent of, I mean, no, because I know you very well. So it's like, if this quote came from you, it would really, really 
you know, <laughs> we would have words, uh, which we're about to have anyway. But uh, I don't know. It was just kind of shocking. I was like, I know this guy. He said, what? <laughs> uh, at the same time, I'm kind of, I think it's cool that they're quoting his podcast because it's, I mean, he's been at it for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. So. Cool. <laughs> I'm definitely going to reach out to him on Twitter. I don't think he listens to our show. Uh, and I guess I'll listen to their episode. I'm assuming this is from a Showgirls episode. And mm-hmm. then uh, and we'll go from there. There's no point in reaching out if I'm just going to be like, hey, dude, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is a good starting point, I guess. Camp, you know, we kind of... I, I feel like we wrestled with this a little bit during Robocop. Mm-hmm. Where we had this this thing of like... Is this movie even more self-aware than we're giving it credit for, right? Back then, it was just like, is Paul Verhoeven making a, an ultra-violent movie to make fun of how America loves ultra-violence? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there was some Twitter discourse after we we uh, posted the episode. And, you know, we had people that were like, of course, it's satire. How can you not get it? Uh, looking at you, Chaz. You were, you were a little nicer, but still, that was the point. Uh, so... Does that apply here? Because I can kind of buy it from Robocop. I have a harder time buying it from Showgirls. Partly because this is our third Joe Esterhaz movie that we've covered in the show. <laughs> it is. So I I feel like I have a sense for his sensibility. And I don't know that satire is, is, is what he goes for when he does this. You could say that it doesn't matter because Verhoeven took it and he turned it into satire, maybe. But I don't think the execution goes there. Uh, I think that we can choose to read it as satire. But I think that kind of like how I felt with Robocop, I think that that means that we, the audience, are doing a lot of of the work there. We're doing a lot of the heavy lifting. When I watch this movie... It just feels like a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, just because people have come up with new interpretations of something does not mean that was the intended goal. If like, I don't know, what's a what's a really bad song or Family Guy? If you watch Family Guy long enough, something will happen that's funny, and you know it's <laughs> that's the case here. If you watch this enough and give it enough time, sure, you can find something uh, hidden meaning in it. Um, it's music and. It's anything. If you just repeat the thing over and over again, eventually, with enough time, someone will find a way to interpret it differently. That does not mean that was the intention of the filmmaker, nor does it mean that we should retroactively celebrate that filmmaker because someone wrote on the internet that they think it means this. That's not... I understand great art uh, inspires debate. Make no mistake about it. There is nothing great or art about this movie. (laughs) And people trying to act otherwise are... Like I told you, and it's a bad pun, and it's them trying to play contrarian. I understand there's people that probably genuinely believe they enjoy this movie, and that's fine. It's it's just on a different plateau than some of these other movies we've done that have been, you know, ranked amongst the worst movies ever. Uh, I mean, most recently, obviously, Howard the Duck, which is fucking <laughs> the Godfather compared to this, and <laughs> was a movie that was yeah, kind of dumb but its legacy is more a victim of how it was received at the time and how like what a bomb it was whereas this is just like i know that's kind of a defeating to what i was just saying about giving things time but i i understand what the point of this movie was and i understand what the idea was i don't understand who 
who thought this was going to work? I, I mean, we talk about RoboCop. They didn't think it was going to be a box office sensation. It was. So, I mean, that always happens with, we see movies that people think, what was that um, uh, with Gambit? The guy who played David Koresh. What's his name? Taylor Kish? Mm-hmm. What was that movie he made that, like, they thought was going to be big and it lost $300 million, $200 million? Oh, uh, the Mars movie. John Carter. Okay. There you go. We still, in modern- <laughs> John Carter ta- versus Showgirls. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to say there's still prevalent examples of movies that studios think are going to do great and then just completely fail. I guess because Verhoeven had made RoboCop and because Esther House had made Basic Instinct, that the thought was, let's rake in the cash. And then, like, but <laughs> then immediately they just, he said, uh, Verhoeven was like, I will only make this if I can have free reign to make an NC 17 movie. So, right there, you slash in half like your audience, more than half it, you like quarter it. And you also compromise a lot of the theaters you can show it at. So, the idea that people were surprised this bombed financially is laughable. Uh, I kind of want to save Elizabeth Berkeley because I think there's some, uh, yeah, no, Let, let's some levity and yeah, okay, <laughs> there's some levity and tragedy to her performance and her legacy as it pertains to this. Uh, I was going to call it a film. No, thank you. As it pertains to this movie, yeah, no, I I kind of want to like untangle a little bit more this whole thing about the the. I guess the the intentions behind the movie also before we even move to the specifics because that's that's really the the part that baffles me because the the shortcomings in execution at least you know from my perspective that's yeah that's that's an interesting discussion to have but I'm more of a I guess it's been bothering me even before we we hit showgirls you know not bothering me but kind of like you know just it's been this itch probably since the the RoboCop episode appropriately you know about, about it's just. You know, something is not it's not that something is not there because I don't catch it, right? And and you know, honestly, the idea that Robocop was even smarter than I was giving it credit for was yeah. was intriguing. It also made me feel a little dumb. But <laughs> I'm like, but that's cool because Robocop is a movie that I still appreciate, whether I'm getting everything that's offering or not. With with Showgirls, it it stings more. Because it's a movie that I don't even think it's a good movie. So when when people are telling me that there's that I just don't get it, man, it's not just that it bothers me, but it also makes me want to like crack the code even more. And I and here's the thing: in a way, I would argue, like I've argued with other movies, that ultimately it doesn't matter if Verhoeven and Esther has set out to make you know the satire about sexuality in Hollywood or sexuality in America, you know, how we, how do we represent sexuality in movies? You know, like just the hypocrisy of, I guess, of what Hollywood does with the NC-17 rating. Like there's a lot of ways that, like you said, you can read this movie and make it sound like a really smart experiment. I think that you can do it whether Verhoeven and Esther has intended it to be that way or not. And, uh, and in the end, if that's what you're getting from the movie, then that's great. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if Verhoeven wanted to make it a satire. If when you're watching it, you feel that it's a satire and you pick up like very interesting parallels. Like, you know, when you're watching Robocop, I do not think that Verhoeven was like, this is where the police is going to be in like 30 years, you Mm -hmm. know, where they're militarized. Maybe he was, I don't know, but it doesn't matter because what really matters is that when you watch it, at least when I watch it, I make that connection. But the difference is in that case, I don't feel like I'm going overboard. 
I'm not doing most of the work for the movie. And with Showgirls, I feel like I am. In fact, I feel like the movie is working against me when I'm trying to apply any sort of smart reading to it. <laughs> because it's just, you know, every filmmaking choice, it just it just works against it. I, w- I wasn't kidding. I really would love to pick their brains, both of these guys, Ezra Has and Verhoeven, and be like, what exactly was going through your mind when, when you were making each decision? You know, from like who you cast, how you direct them, how you shoot it, how far you go. I, I can totally see like him thinking, I mean, I could argue like if you're gonna, if you're out to make an uncompromising movie about the life of a stripper in Vegas, you're like, fuck it. I'm not compromising. That's why I won my NC-17. Yeah. I don't care if it's going to alienate half my audience i don't care if it's not going to show up in in as many theaters because this is going to be a definitive statement about that but that's not what this is i mean this is what you're describing is uh elizabeth shoe's plot in leaving las vegas that's that's like an unflinching look at the idea of being an escort or a stripper in vegas from a moderately female perspective because you see a decent amount of that from her perspective Mm -hmm, directly mm -hmm. um but, but then, okay, so, but then the other thing is like, so is this supposed to be funny? You know, that guy, uh, Christopher Knoll, was like, oh, it's so much fun if you don't think about it. I was like, dude, you have a pretty graphic rape scene in the third okay, act. Okay, so that's, I was willing to accept this movie as dumb fun until that point. I know there's a lot, like, I Spit on Your Grave is an example of a movie that people have, I, I have a hard time calling that camp because of the brutality in it, but people view it in through a similar lens. And I know a lot of the old grindhouse movies depicted some pretty brutal sexual acts, sexual assault that still have big followings. Fucking I reference this movie all the time just because in the horror community, it's celebrated as some achievement, but cannibal Holocaust, mm-hmm. a lot of like violence and, you know, sexual depravity in it that I don't find any redeeming quality to. And with that movie also, I've been met a lot with, horror aficionados like myself of you just don't get it and similar to this movie if that's the case that's fine i don't need to get it then and with this i was willing to accept the it's so bad it's kind of fun because i did laugh at how horrible some of the dialogue is and the insane sex scene where she starts like Mm -hmm. convulsing in the water that was so silly that it was funny but that rape scene how it's played and then the repeated cutbacks to it is Mm -hmm so revolting and in the end there's really no comeuppance for it that molly chick is still like stricken to a hospital bed and it's such a like whitewashed version of the you know the the heroine so to speak i got him you're gonna be fine now it's like no and it's not even that's not even the payoff because she still has to go talk to fucking gina gershon it's (laughs) But but okay so so see how we're like just appalled at all the storytelling choices right and yeah. so that's when somebody would say yeah man that's the point that's like Verhoeven wants you to be mad because you are conditioned by by traditional movies to expect things to play out a certain way and now he's just kind of like fucking with you he's like like I, I think I used this expression in the RoboCop episode he's like holding a mirror to you and showing you that. You know, isn't it bullshit that that you were okay with this, with all the bullshit happening in this movie until there was a rape? And then once there's a, a rape, now, you know, I'm going to give you what most people expect, which is like a revenge, a ridiculous revenge sequence where she like beats the shit out of him. But uh, 
And you I certainly be... wouldn't say I was okay with what was happening in the movie up until this point. <laughs> but I, I, but I think that maybe you know you could justify that that's his. You know, if you're you're applying this sort of uh, master plan to what's going on, where what what's really going on with Showgirls is that he wants the audience to kind of like get everything they want. In the sense, says, oh well, you want nudity, you want hot girls naked and dancing and crazy sex and Vegas. You know, you're gonna get all that. And now I'm going to give you like a brutal rape scene that's going to like shake you. I'm shaking you this way because you can't have one without the other, right? You can't have like the the sexy sleaze without having the the off-putting, disgusting, brutal sleaze. And then I'm going to give you a ridiculous sequence where Elizabeth Berkley beats the shit out of the rapist because this is the kind of thing that normally satisfies you in a movie. But I'm going to shoot you in a way that it's not satisfying. It's just ridiculous to just show you how ridiculous it is. And then to underscore how ridiculous the whole thing is, um, the, the real climax of the movie is going to be this kiss between Elizabeth Berkley and Gina Gershon. Kind of like to, once again, throw it in your face that everything you wanted was stupid because you guys are dumb. <laughs> I mean, okay. it, it's... I, I know I know that's not how you feel. You're just reciting... Oh, like that's not, a, that's a, not. Yeah, and honestly, that say. was... For a while, I considered making that my contrarian's position in, in contrarian's corner. But I'm like that would be exhausting to keep up with that. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be fun, <laughs> and I would be making myself mad. <laughs> Mine was this is the porn version of Black Swan. That was my <laughs> idea watching it. As um, soon as I like latched onto that take, I was like, yeah, that that's where to go. Uh, that checks out. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I understand that some people might make that argument. But it's I don't know. I it could be I'm like older now and. Um, I understand the gravity of situations more having a rape scene just to have one or to like do some sort of manipulation of your audience or their expectations. Sorry, that's really not going to work for me. If you're going to have like an out of nowhere rape scene in an outlandish movie, it better tie together some fundamental elements of the movie like Pulp Fiction. Uh, The first time I saw that, I was like, hmm, this is weird. But, you know, in the end, it's Tarantino. It's it's still kind of weird, but it still ties together some pretty paramount elements to the movie. Uh, a movie like this, where you have some of the just farcical, fa- almost fantastical elements to it, just to kind of throw that in, just to vilify a character, and like like we were saying, the way it's presented and everything is so tasteless and in a movie of no taste. Of course, I know, but it's. You want to talk about if a movie doesn't have you and then throw some shit like that mm-hmm, in there, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. going to completely sour you on the entire experience. And like I said, everything you said and all of these reviews I've read uh, that like celebrate its campiness, I was willing to go with it up until that point because like we've talked about uh, with a lot of the really uh, air quotes uh, bad movies that I like, like all the horrible dialogue, I can recite page and verse from uh, you know, the Friday the 13th franchise or eventually Howard the Duck, uh, Ready to Rumble, you know, these terrible movies that I love uh, that I can, you know, quote, my fallback and excuse and reasoning will always be that there's just an air of levity and fun to it that makes you not take it too seriously or makes me not take it too seriously that I'm able to remove myself and enjoy what's in front of me for what it is with this, not only the scene we've been talking about, the scene in question with Molly, but like the rest of the movie trying to present itself so seriously and this, the absolute carnal overkill in this and its ability to 
take uh, a really good actor like Kyle McLaughlin and make him seem very, very bad. I mean, Gina Gershon was able to shine in this movie just on sheer willpower alone, but... <laughs> Oh, man. It's the right note. I mean, you want to talk about camp. I think that that's the one time that I would be like, yeah, that this is campy and like intentional yes. camp, you know, and yes. it's 100%, like very clearly intentional camp. But uh, this falls into, uh, just to finish my thought here, this falls into what we've said about the room of a movie so bad that it's not enjoyable anymore. So my original take until the closing sequence was going to be, I can understand how someone would like this and want to celebrate it and watch it in like a Rocky Horror Picture type of way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be one of those people. And then the final act happened, and I was just pissed at the movie, and I was just like, fuck this. Yeah, I, I was pretty much the same way, because I was not, even before things got like mean-spirited, which is a word that I've used recently in another Joe Esther has movie that we covered. Uh, even before then, I just didn't find Fittingly it entertaining. enough, at the yep. very end of the movie as well. Yep, yep, uh, and, and I, I want to get to that in a minute, but the I just didn't find it entertaining anyway. Like I found it boring and repetitive, and just really not, you know. Have we ever, like, as men, have you ever watched a movie, a two-hour-long event that had eighty percent of it had hot naked chicks in it, and I was I was soft as butter left out for a night, man. <laughs> like there was nothing arousing to me about this movie. And that's when I was watching it. I was like, okay, if I saw this at maybe like 14 or 15, I would think this was cool. But I, I was just like halfway through the movie, I realized it was like, these chicks have been naked almost the entirety of this movie. And at no point did I think, damn, that's hot. I mean, Gina Gershon's fucking hot. Cause she's Gina Gershon, but then she does all this stupid dancing and her dialogue makes no sense. So I was just making sure we're, we're in agreement that I would not describe this movie as sexy. It's not, and I don't. Of course, I don't even know if it's meant to be. Like, I mean, if it's trying to be sexy, then yes, it absolutely fails on that level. If if it's not, if it's trying to make again be a commentary on how unsexy it can be to just go all out, right? Like that, maybe the PG thirteen version of this movie, or well, the R rated version of this movie, would be sexier because you wouldn't, it wouldn't be so in your face, and more would be left to the imagination. That could be interesting. I don't know that that's what it's trying to do, but I can see somebody arguing that. Uh, Wild things. That's sexy. Come on now. <laughs> Bill Murray. <laughs> uh, Lost in Translation is sexy. <laughs> yeah. Parts uh, of it are. I, as we're talking, you know, I just it just came to me that if I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to Paul Verhoeven, and just to Paul Verhoeven, because, not to... Joe Esther has. I'm, I'm about to move on to him in a minute. But Paul Verhoeven, I could buy that he set out to make a movie that was not about the movie, but about the experience of watching the movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, I'm going to make Showgirls. And Showgirls is going to suck and it's going to confound you and maybe it'll arouse some people, but it's also going to put off a lot of people and it's just not going to make any sense. But that's not the point. The point of making Showgirls the point of watching Showgirls is about experiencing Showgirls. I mean, that's like several levels of just meta craziness. And because it's the guy behind Robocop and Starship Troopers and Total Recall, I'm like, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. That to me, the biggest question mark is how did Paul Verhoeven make this movie? Like, how how is this from the same filmmaker? And so I'm inclined to say that there to believe that there was something greater at work and it just doesn't work on, on so many of us because 
I, I think that you require a very specific sensibility for this movie to work the way that I hope Verhoeven intended it to work, you know, as some sort of commentary. Now, on the screenplay side, again, this is uh, our third Joe Esterhaus movie, and I've seen at least one more, because I've seen Basic Instinct. Um, mm. I think if this doesn't really feel like a Paul Verhoeven movie, this 100% feels like a Joe Esterhaus movie. So I'm not giving him any credit. I believe that this is just this is just a screenplay he wrote. I mean, I, I don't know. Do, do you agree? Like This feels like Jade. This feels like Sliver and... If you've seen Basic Instinct, you, you know it feels like Basic Instinct, yeah. it, with different levels of execution, different like highs and lows. But overall, I'm mean, like, I can totally buy that the same guy wrote those four screenplays. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, sex and uh, you know, you can make the point that there's misogyny all across the board, and that and again the mean spirited turn that some sequences take, and just this overall, I think contempt for most of his characters especially women it just it all feels very joe esser has and not in a good way <laughs> in this case so i think that to me like if i had to go out on a limb and just place my bets at how this all went out i think that paul verhoven tried to elevate a joe esser has screenplay and it is a failed experiment for most of us and there are some people that somehow managed to overcome all the things that turn us off about the movie and connect to it the way that Verhoeven wanted to. That is like the the positive way of looking at it. The mm-hmm. the negative way is like they just didn't know what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> they were like delusional. They they set out to make a harsh look at you know the realities of a Vegas stripper, and they came out with this. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it seems like in some of the excerpts and just little blips, I was able to find Esther House tried to. Again, he's not here for us to talk to, but he tried to make it seem like there was some feminist agenda to this movie of showing how poorly female strippers are treated. I agree that sex workers and you know dancers have to put up with a lot of shit unfairly, and I would be open to that discussion if the climax of his movie wasn't two women open mouth kissing each other, <laughs> and uh, like the scene with the nipples. Yes, I am positive that exact same scenario has happened, but like the lingering of the camera work and everything, it absolutely at certain points feels like they were exploiting uh, Elizabeth Berkeley for her nudity for her body and even like Gina Gershon. And I assume a lot of the other dancers in the movie were actually strippers or exotic dancers or what have you. Um, I have a really, really hard time accepting that this movie was uh, its intention was to further a feminist cause or to uh, turn a mirror on society to exemplify our misogyny because the, like you look at the advertising material, the poster Mm -hmm. for it, it's, um, you know, this is a discussion we had on our Patreon episode about blue is the warmest color. That movie is, has some sex in it, but that's really not what the marketing advertising or like moral of the story is about. This is just like, yeah, it's like titty, titty, ass, ass, titty, titty, ass, ass, sex, 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 sex. Oh, there's there's a story to this. You know, you got to read between the lines here. <laughs> I think that uh, that Showgirls Defenders would argue that everything, including the marketing, is part of the of Verhoeven's Of course strategy. they would. Yeah. I don't, again, I have a hard time buying it too. And I think that it's because like you, 
I feel when I'm watching it, it feels really exploitative. I mean, I don't know how much of it is just that I, I have these misguided feelings of, I don't know, protectiveness towards like two actresses that I know. You know, it's like, I know Gina Gershon. Yeah. I mean, not personally, obviously, but, you know, I know her from work. I've liked her in other movies. I, in Guitarist Corner, I said it, you know, I know Elizabeth Berkeley from Save I'd Bell. And it's hard for me not to read this as a studio, a filmmaker, kind of taking advantage of, of an actress that was trying to break through. Yep. You know, she clearly commits into this movie. And I think the movie lets her down over and over. And to a lesser extent, but still it applies to Gina Gershon. So that to me, it just feels like you're kind of like making your point against, you know, let's say that you you set out to make a, a point against misogyny and, and just female exploitation, but you're using misogyny and female exploitation to make that point. So surely there was a better way to go about it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, this is something that's very prevalent in today's discussions of art and history of... I don't know if we're obliged. I don't know if we have like a direct obligation or responsibility to constantly view everything through modern lenses, but it's something that we have to entertain. Uh, and it's something that we have to be cognizant of. That's what's happening with a lot of things right now. Uh, fairly in some cases for sure. And I think with this, there's no way to view it through a modern lens without coming away with the feelings that we've had. Uh, you know, if, I don't even know if a, there's no way a movie like this could get made today for a major major theater release, could it? If it did somehow, I think it would be different, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's like what I oh, I forgot to like the the point I forgot when I was talking about how boring it was. It's just that I can see how back in '95, maybe it got by on shock value. You know, just like oh my god, I can't believe that 50 percent of this movie is Elizabeth Berkeley. Just bearing it all. That doesn't yeah. really shock you in 2021. <laughs> you know, it's like it shocks you in the sense that, like, oh man, that's that wasn't necessary. But not as in it's not the kind of thing that keeps you hooked on the movie. Not from a perverted or erotic or arousal kind of way, but just in the sense of like, you can't believe that this is happening. It, so that's why I was bored. I was just kind of like, okay, this it doesn't even work as a as a provocation when I watch it. And maybe it did in 95. I'm assuming it did in 95. And if you were to try to make this movie again in 2021, you would have to go so much further in order to to provoke someone. We've seen much worse and we've seen it done better, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, even whatever time period you're watching this, it's just not well written. And like the James character, what is his purpose he comes in and he's gonna like teach her how to dance, and then he just disappears halfway through the movie. Uh, um, we 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 kind of like we skipped over it in Contreras Corner, which is I mean you know it doesn't really matter, but he has that moment which I guess oh is where he's engaged to the other chick, right? Where you show that well he does he finally gets to perform his dance in front of people and they boo him out of the stage, and then he's like, well I'm done with dancing because everybody hates it and I got this girl pregnant anyway, so we have to we have to get married. I, I mean all I could come up with is like I guess he's trying to give us a variation like you know kind of. Well, it's not just women that are suffering in Vegas. There's guys like this guy who's not as bad as everybody else, but his dreams are also crushed. I don't know. The I way I read it shit. was they forgot about that character and they <laughs> had to write him off and so they pulled that together. 
I don't know, man. I know there's people that love it. And I know there's, um, it has its legacy, and that's fine. I mean, I wonder if the if the, I wonder if every piece, and every podcast episode or whatever that, that is all about this movie that's that's easy as a, as a parody as a, a satire as is is something good. I wonder if they do have the caveat of the rape scene when they're like, we'll give you this. It's not a perfect movie because it has that really weird, brutal rape scene that kind of upends everything else that's going in the movie. It's possible. Like it's, I haven't read anything. I haven't listened to anything. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about that. But uh, uh, I did find Verhoeven had said uh, the reason for it was that like Molly was the only good character. And so he felt it was necessary to punish her to show like that Vegas is a bad place and even some of my closest collaborators have said they thought the rape scene took the fun out of the movie, which is exactly what we were saying. Like, if uh, if that wasn't in there, I could see why someone was into it or someone enjoyed it in the in the vein of how I enjoyed fucking I don't know. Here comes the boom or something. That quote now makes me not want to give Verhoeven any credit. Do you actually need it, somebody, to tell you that a rape scene was going to take the fun out of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the Costanza having sex with the woman on his desk at work. Was that wrong? Because if, <laughs> if someone had just told me that type of thing was frowned upon, I, I, I wouldn't have done it. This was not in the in the rule book. So so Elizabeth Berkeley. Do do you want to get into that? Yeah. Um I found this excerpt that kind of made me angry because it's so ridiculous. It was in response to the shameful treatment of its star. And this was an article from Culture, BBC.com's Culture section, written by Hugh Montgomery, which is the most British name I've ever heard. And it was uh, <laughs> a 25-year retrospective looking back. It was from July of last year, 2020. He talks about a lot of the, the topics we've been touching on. He basically wrote this article to say that it's a misunderstood masterpiece, like a genuinely good movie. So this was in reference to the... Uh, response to Elizabeth Berkeley at the time. The gratuitous nastiness towards a young woman aside, the tragedy is that these judgments are so patently wrong. Berkeley gives the definition of a star turn, absolutely singular and charged with haywire electricity that makes it more essential than a myriad of dutiful performances that got nominated for Oscars. It benefits from the meta-authenticity that comes from a young entertainer pulling out all the stops for her shot at the big time, playing a young entertainer, pulling out all the stops for... Uh, uh, he uses that again, pulling out all the stops for her shot at the big time. Where's the fucking editor on this thing? Uh, <laughs> but above and beyond that is an exhilaratingly surreal and abrasive performance in which gestures and expressions are exaggerated to an inhuman level whether she ravenously is attacking a burger, churning up the water with force of a jet ski engine while having sex in a swimming pool, or being radioactively hostile to Crystal, you can't criticize the performance for not being realistic. Uh, I, I mean, that is certainly one way to look at it. <laughs> I, I, I read that to show that there are varying degrees of dislike uh and also admiration and adoration for this movie uh that are perplexing to me poor hemplo ready to rumble you ain't gonna find any article defending it like this 
You're going to find people like, I, I guess if someone cared enough, which no one does, it's fucking, it's Jimmy King and DDP. The most you're going to find on Rated Rumble is like that bootleg shirt I have that someone made of it or just people on Twitter like me quoting it from time to time. <laughs> it It is alarming that there are pieces like this. So Elizabeth Berkeley, Julio, I know I cut you off there. Where were you going to go? Why don't you take it away? Because I am like almost rendered mute by that passage I just read. Well, I mean, just building off on that, I I would say the one point he kind of has, I guess, is that it would be a mistake to judge Elizabeth Berkeley's performance on a scale of naturalism, right? But that's, yeah, you wouldn't because nobody in this movie, save for maybe Molly, acts like a human being. So... They'll be dumb. They'll be like, you know, if you're watching a certain type of Coen Brothers movie and then you're like, oh, George Clooney's not acting like a real guy. Well, okay, well, you know, there's, yeah, it, it, this is hyper real. Like, th- that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. That's. Uh, and that's another thing I would be open to discussing, but the way the movie plays out, it just, it never brings it around. The idea of all these people think they're stars when they're really not. So that's why they act the way they do. To me, that. Uh, you know that that's similar in line with Valley of the Dolls that we referenced. Yeah, but there is a there's a consistency. Yes, 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 and that comes back to what you said is that's me doing work for the movie that the mm-hmm. movie may not be trying to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think I mean it's it's always weird once you get to like the black and white part of like qualifying something like a performance. But to me, when I watch, I'm like, this is bad. This is why isn't this working? Right, and. It's not that she is not acting naturalistically. It's not that she doesn't come across as a real person, because like I said, nobody does in this movie. But still, out of everybody in the cast, she stands out. You know, it, it's it could be that she's going a little further, like she's she's just playing a little harder than everybody else. But it's just that sense that when you watch it, it just feels like an actress that doesn't know what she's doing. And I'm not. I really, honestly, I wanted to watch some episodes of Saved by the Bell. I obviously didn't have time, but just to see if it was just a, a thing that, I mean, I feel bad, like kind of like bashing her. Cause I really think that, you know, she deserved better than this movie. And in general, like, you know, I don't think anybody deserves to be the star of showgirls. So, yeah. so I kind of feel bad piling on, but I kind of wanted to see if like, was she, you know, what's her range? Because if this is just a natural extension of what, of her acting range and say by the bell, they'll be like, all right, that well, that's it. You know, it's like she, much like Arnold Schwarzenegger in End of Days, like she landed a role that demanded more of her than what she could give, and or she was not directed well. You know, I don't know how. What's the deal? Like, how did Elizabeth Berkeley ends in this project, and how does Paul Verhoeven feel about it? Does he, did he want somebody else, and he got stuck with her, or did she get the part because she was like? willing to go all in on it and and then is he frustrated because she can't convey you know because what 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 she what he needs from her in the movie is beyond what she can give or is he intentionally directing her to give this performance that doesn't mesh with everything else that's in the movie you know and then i can see how somebody would be like not this guy that you just read but somebody else could say no man the point is that she's meant to be giving a bad performance she's meant to not even fit in with the cast. That's the whole point of the movie. The way that, you know, we were talking earlier about how like the experience of watching showgirls is what the movie is about. Just like the the badness of Elizabeth Berkeley's performance is what the performance is about. 
you're kind of like sabotaging your own movie when you <laughs> when you make that happen. And my immediate argument to that shit would be, okay, well, I don't even fucking care anymore because that it really fucked up this woman's life for years. You took this like 23, looks like a 23 year old girl. I mean, you're still, you're, I know in the eyes of the law, you're an adult, but you're still a fucking child at that age. And she thought she was going to do something like really big. And I'm sure a lot of people convinced her that this was going to be huge. And then she like strips completely naked. She's ostensibly in a softcore porno that gets pressed to film and released in theaters across the nation. And then she's mercilessly attacked for her performance. And imagine how that feels to bury yourself like that. And Mm -hmm. then have all that cynicism and criticism come back at you where it's such a fine line to walk when we're talking about it right now, because I'm not trying to defend her performance because it is not good, but it seems like it, it wasn't worth it. And that someone maybe could have intervened at some point or made her more aware of like this gargantuan risk that she was taking, which again, at 23, I don't even know if that's enough for you to comprehend, but I know just from the legacy of this movie. And then of course the research I did for it, and this is commonly known. She thought that her taking this complete, opposite of Saved by the Bell role and stripping naked and making this really uh, hot to trot controversial movie lightning rod of attention movie was going to turn her into fucking uh, Meryl Streep or um, maybe not Meryl Streep but you know what is Meryl Streep's show girls uh, maybe like a Sharon Tate or a um, Anne Margaret Sharon Stone there you go a, a vixen of some sort, but like an A-list actor, at least for the time being. And instead, she got just nothing. She has this movie now, which kind of fitting in full circle, similarly to Valley of the Dolls, with the actresses eventually in that uh, coming around to why it has its cult following and being able to kind of laugh at it and kind of recover from like, you know, the a disaster at whatever level that it was. I'm glad that she's come to terms with that. Cause I know she showed up at some like screening of it in the past few years or so and kind of said her piece on it, but this like fucked her career. And I'm not saying that she would have been, you know, example number seven. She wasn't going to be, I don't think it was ever in the cards for her to be Amy Adams or anybody like that. Uh, but we're never going to know because this just made her persona known grata. And really everyone else in this movie got away not unscathed completely, but were able to basically pick business up back as usual. In the case of Gina Gershon, it's because she's awesome. Kyle McLaughlin, he can just say, yeah, I've done other weird movies, though. I mean, that guy, he he's done, like, so much shit. He's, like, bulletproof. You As an actor, young actors out there, if you want to be bulletproof and never really be held responsible for anything not doing well, follow Kyle McLaughlin's career trajectory, you know, do really weird David Lynch movies, have an appearance in Sex in the City, make horrible <laughs> movies like this, just be all over the place to where people can never get a full read on you. <laughs> Real quick before I throw it back to you, Julio, for kind of, I don't know, response or what more you have on Elizabeth Berkeley. Uh, a note here is one of the reasons the film is reviled or revered, depending on who you talk to, is because of Elizabeth Berkeley's over-the-top acting. Uh, Berkeley, who's best known for her overacting, goody-goody Jesse Spano, Spano, and the classic team Saved by the Bell, certainly went in for all the gusto. And abandoned, you rarely see in a major motion picture. As a result, she was roundly torn apart by critics. But it turns out that was director Paul Verhoeven's fault. He admitted in an interview in 2015 that her acting, quote-unquote, 
uh, style had been his idea, not Berkeley's. He said, people have, of course, criticized her for being over the top in her performance. Most of that comes from me. I pushed it in that direction, good or not good. I was the one who asked her to exaggerate everything, every move, because that was the element of style that I thought would work for the movie. He admitted it was the wrong choice, and her career never recovered because of it. All right. Well, I've I've regained a little bit of the respect I'd lost for Paul Verhoeven <laughs> during this discussion because that's what I was going to say. That is 100% correct. He was the director. He let it happen. Even if it hadn't been his suggestion, if she had if, if this was her idea, if that was her take on the character, you as the director are the one that has the power to say, "You know what? It's not working out. It doesn't you know, I I am looking at everything that's happening." I am the one that's behind the camera and has that unique perspective. And, you know, I it's not happening. Tone it down a little bit. Let's try something else. But he didn't. He just let it happen for the entire movie. So, yeah, it's 100% on him. And I'm glad that he says that, he's the, it's the, that it was the wrong choice because, in a way, that kind of validates if he thinks that her performance doesn't work. Well, that's kind of like admitting that the entire movie doesn't work <laughs> because it... it, it it's just, she's the central figure. She's a protagonist. Not that it does, I guess, Elizabeth Berkeley's career much good, but... Especially uh, to say that 20 years later. It could have just, like, came out the, the <laughs> Thursday after the movie came out. Be like, hey, give her work. It's not her fault. Oh, man. It's not good. I, I don't know if I'm ever going to really fire this up again or have any motivation to do so. And I don't... I don't know how I could give it anything but an F. So, I think I've told you before, Letterbox won't let you do zero stars. <laughs> if it did, I would give it zero stars. As it is, I'm gonna have to give it half a star because that's the mm-hmm. the minimum. But this is just, I, I can't think of a single thing that's worthwhile. I gotta ask you though, because last time that we did this, you know, you were like, "Oh, Indecent Proposal is worse than Jade." So is Showgirls worse than Indecent Proposal? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I figure you would say that, but I wanted to hear you say it out loud. <laughs> uh, I mean, we have to do this now because this is, I think, one of the most resound burials we've had of any movie. <laughs> you you firing this up before Christmas with the Cranks? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, this is worse than Christmas with the Cranks. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Don't you agree? No, I still think uh, Christmas with the Cranks and Battlefield Earth are the worst movies we've done. Okay, wait. Okay, so look. So here's the spread. Because I actually, <laughs> I, I, I might be mistaken, but I think that the one time that you said that something was worse than Christmas with the Cranks was when we did Jilly. At yes, least at the time correct. of recording. Yeah. Uh, so, so really, I think that maybe our bottom three are Jilly, Battlefield Earth, and Christmas with the Cranks. I would watch any of those movies before I watch Showgirls again. Yeah, no, that's going to be a no for me, dog. I will... Oh. I can't even laugh at Showgirls. And I tried. Christmas <laughs> the Cranks, I can make fun of it. Yeah. What Christmas with the Cranks but, does to Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis is not as bad as what Showgirls does to Elizabeth Berkley. To the female gender. Yes. <laughs> to the movie-going public. Um, yeah, I think I'll roll with that. I still... I would watch Showgirls again before Battlefield Earth or Geely, but I think just with how much of a sucker I am for Christmas, I could find at least some joy in the Christmas carols. So Christmas with the Cranks, uh, 
you have been unseated. You are now out of the bottom three uh, as far as the, the contrarian's lore goes. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, so so Christmas with the Cranks. So now our bottom three are Battlefield Earth, Jilly, and Showgirls? Yes, that would be the bottom three that we've done. Oh, man. So Christmas with the Cranks just, like, shot up in a way. Now it's not even in the conversation. <laughs> Living it all by the outfield just started playing like in the Christmas with the cranks. You know, Tim Allen's getting the call right now that they, they've officially been removed. He's storming the Capitol in excitement right now. Yeah, so that's going to be moving forward in Contrarian's canon, the bottom three. I think Julio and I have different rankings of them, but in no specific order, Showgirls, Battlefield Earth, and Geely. That's that's the lowest of the low. That's as as, as bad and as bleak as you can get. I'm in agreement. Like I said, the ranking might be different, but in in the end, that's just... No one wins with any of those movies is the, <laughs> the moral of the story. <laughs> All right. Well, Julio, I'm... Hoping that we're going to turn a corner here. Like we said, we're finishing next month our 90 sexy erotic thrillers uh, arc that we did as Fallout for a live stream for The Cure with David Cronenberg's Crash, which I believe is 1996. Uh, that's off in the distance. What's immediately on deck, Julio? Uh, immediately on deck, our patron pick for March for this official feed, for the Contrarian's feed, is from Paul. And he's picked this 2019 movie called uh, Baccarat. Baccarat, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he specifically asked us to go in blind. So I'm not even going to read a synopsis. I just know that it's it's available on, on Amazon Prime for rental. And it's a movie from 2019 that's a little over two hours. That's all I know. And apparently that's all I need to know. The only other thing I know is that they enjoyed so much going in blind to that movie when they did it on the Filmbusters podcast that they've they've coined the the term buckro blind. So I guess he likes it. It's it's certainly it's fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's in the 90s. All right. So excited to get to Paul's pick on our next episode. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for Showgirls. So now we move into our perennial plugs. As always, we want to thank the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Roth Gieser, he is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our Patreon page, on our upcoming merch. Uh, he's great, and apparently he's making his way through uh, Haddonfield Nights, Alex. He messaged me yes. a while ago to tell me that uh, he was listening and that because of our our coverage of the Halloween series, he had been inspired to rewatch the entire series, kind of like fill in the blind spots that he had. And I'm like, this is why we do this. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if we can inspire anyone to watch uh, Season of the Witch again, then our job here is done. But anyway, Hans. Hans is great. Check out his website, mildemonios.pe, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. He is... Like I said, a podcaster. He has his podcast, Nación Combi, Marginal, and Contante Sonante. They're all in Spanish, available in every podcatcher. Uh, he's also a writer. He has a whole bunch of books, mostly about zombies. He published this short story collection about zombies called Somos Zombies. And I mentioned it here before because the, the gimmick is that each story is takes place in a different region of Peru. And it's written by an author that lives in that region. So that's part of what's cool. The other thing that I didn't know until he mentioned it just a few days ago is that the title of the book, Somos Zombies, 
It's a play on the beginning of the Peruvian national anthem, which starts with Somos Libres, which I thought it was pretty clever. So anyway, you can check out his all his zombie novels, all the links to all his work on his website. Thank you, Hans, for all your work. And thank you, Ms. Zoe Perez, for all your work as well, helping oversee our social media game our Instagram account. And if you haven't followed us on Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Contrarian Prime. Our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Zoe uploads a lot of videos of us are discussing uh, outtakes, uh, graphics that coincide with recent episodes, all that good stuff. Uh, Zoe, we really appreciate what you do for us. Make it look better than Julio or I could. With all those affairs in order, that is going to wrap up this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah, yeah.